Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Dusty White, and I'm here with Bob Thune of Cormdale Church and Pastor Chris Hemelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today, we're talking about the last chapter of the Christian family in Herman Bovink's book. Hey, we usually do third Wednesday theology, but since it's the month of December, we're doing we're giving you your Christmas presents early, friends. Second Wednesday theology. <laughs> and some Joe Biden a little Joe Biden soundtrack for you. We actually are um gonna take a couple weeks off here at uh at the Christmas holiday. So we won't have any new episodes for you after this one until January third. Uh, so that's when you can expect the next episode of the Wednesday Conversation. So we'll take a couple of weeks where we won't release any content. Uh, we're going to enjoy taking some vacation and taking some time off. But we wanted to before this year ends. And since Chris is actually here, finally. Wow. I feel like to- I've been taking a vacation from the podcast all fall. <laughs> Sorry. Well, good. That's how we feel, too. Well, we've been hazing you about it. <laughs> yeah. So. so we thought we'd finish up uh, Herman Bovink's book, The Christian Family, and sort of bring to a close this year's engagement with Bovink's work. Also, we need to mention some snacks today. Oh, snack game is strong today. Yeah, they're uh, good. Kelsey, who I think, you know, doesn't want to, she wants to maintain her place. She she knows that cer- certain people have been aiming for her to displace her as this sort of like number one baker in Coram Deo. Tough at to least by At least by my rankings. And so I think she realized someone else brought us some cinnamon rolls at a few few episodes ago. Amos did. And so she was like, well... I'm back on the map. Yeah. And so she brought us Stroud cinnamon rolls, a Kansas City recipe, apparently. Also a returning snack contributor. Yeah. There's just something there. Yeah, she just she just knows when we just need a, a little a little pick me up, a little, you know, Christmas time snack. And so thank you, Kelsey, for providing some delicious sugary treats for us to enjoy. I guess they're not really even sugary treats. They're just delicious cinnamon rolls. They're, huh? they're amazing. Man, they they're make good. gluten-free people break their Break the rule. Yeah, Dusty's they're so good. free except for well, when there's cinnamon yeah. rolls. I mean, Dusty's not really. But. <laughs> Dusty's going to have a migraine tomorrow. But no. Today, today is a great day, let me tell you. So thank you, Kelsey, for providing snacks today. And uh, we want to uh, engage this last chapter of Bovink's work on the Christian family that he titles The Future of the Family. And so he is doing two things in this chapter. Number one, he's sort of prognosticating a little bit. Remember, he's writing in 1912. He's writing about what he sees on the horizon in society for uh, what seems to be taking place on sort of like family policy and how society and governments are treating the family. But then he also wants to bring us into sort of the eschatological vision of the family. What is God's plan and goal for the future of the family? So this is a really interesting chapter. It has a lot of uh, he actually has a whole philosophy of money in here. He has a whole philosophy of private property. Because remember, when Boving talks about the family, he's talking about what, more what the New Testament would call the household. So he has in mind not just the relationships of husband, wife, brother, sister, parents, children, but also sort of like all that the household brings into society. And so he has in mind everything from, you know, uh, owning land to producing wealth to gainful employment, all those kinds of things. Let me read the very first sentence of this chapter. If the moral health of society depends on the health of family life, the question is of interest whether the attempt to guard and restore the family 
has any chance for success. <laughs> I'm provoked by two things. One, he states straightforwardly the moral health of society depends on the health of family life. And again, he's been making that point throughout the book, but it's worth reemphasizing the fact that he feels like, man, societies can't be healthy unless families are healthy. And by the way, that's a very biblical and orthodox opinion. He later on in the chapter calls Christians to this work. The family is indeed threatened by serious dangers and is exposed to all kinds of opposition. But it is our duty to review these dangers and our calling to resist in a powerful way every hostile force that undermines the foundation of the family. So I want you to hear that because I think in our day, we we live in a day where no Christian wants to be too, uh, I don't know, convictional about anything. We don't want to be a Christian nationalist? Yeah, we kind of want to be like, well, I mean, you know, it's probably not as bad as it feels like. What Bavink wants is for Christians to resist every hostile force that undermines the foundation of the family, that, we, that he wants the church to be very committed to the flourishing and thriving of the family and opposed to things in society that work against the flourishing of the family. And I think we need to hear that call because I think we sometimes can lack courage. It, it feels political sometimes for us to, to wade into questions about you know how families should operate and what kinds of policies should be in place in society to to nurture children and to create healthy families. And he, Bavink wants you to be unapologetic as a Christian about being aware of the dangers that threaten the family and resisting the hostile forces that undermine the family. One of the things that struck me about reading this chapter is how far back problems go. I mean, we could tend to think that the problems we see in our society are the product of the 60s. And Bobbing, some of the language that Bobbing uses, it, it almost sounds like he's talking about today in some ways. So it was, yeah, it was fascinating to read. Okay, this this is a well over hundred year old problem. I mean, imagine if Bobbing were to see our society. I mean, he would probably have a hard time believing some of the stuff that's going on now. But but it's uh, yeah, it is interesting to see that that the what we're seeing now, the roots of that run well over a hundred years, and. I don't know. I, I don't necessarily have any implications for that, but just I thought it was interesting. It's also interesting what that means for how we should be making decisions. And I think a lot of people are just kind of going through life. We're not necessarily thinking about the family and what the impact on the family as we make decisions. Yes. And I think there are modern day ethical questions that speak that tie directly to a Christian view of the family. For instance, surrogacy is a big ethical thing right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, a big ethical question. And here's why, because we have embraced gay marriage. And if you are a gay couple, how do you get a kid? Well, you rent a womb and have someone, you know, you have, if you have the money, there are people out there who will be a surrogate mother for you. And so as a Christian, you have two options. Oh, I guess I should kind of just ignore that. Or no, that's morally and ethically wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can see how our understanding of the family and what the family is and our desire to resist the hostile forces that threaten the family actually call us into sort of policy arguments about should this exist in society and how should we relate to questions about things like surrogacy. And so there's a very, um, we as Christians need to have courage in wading into those conversations instead of being timid. On page 139, Bavink says, Christians may not permit their conduct to be determined by the spirit of the age, 
but must focus on the requirement of God's commandment. Even if they come to stand alone, as as history has so often obligated them to do, they must show in word and deed what an inestimable blessing God has granted to humanity and to society with the gift of marriage and family. Uh, I like his call again that our conduct must be focused on the requirement of God's commandment. But Bobbing is kind of old school in the sense that like, he didn't care how you feel about it. He just wants you to know like, God has commanded certain things, and our duty as Christians is to respond to the commands God has given and the principles that God has laid down. And that that is the most important aspect of Christian obedience is just following the Lord, being faithful to him and to his word. Page 142, he says this, the task of the state is to discover the internal law to which the family is subject by virtue of its nature and the ordinances established by God to acknowledge, protect, and maintain this law. So to, to emphasize your point, what Bob Inc. is called, I mean, call this Christian nationalism if you want it, or just call it um, the government recognizing natural law. But Bob Inc. is making a strong point that Christians should care about the government and society upholding the internal law, the essence of the family. And it is actually the job of the state. So this whole idea of separation of church and state, he's making the argument that this one of the important jobs of the state is to protect the family, not in a just sort of broadly determined, but, but actually it's essence, the natural law essence of a man and wife married, uh, kids being raised by the family, everything that he's been laying out in this, uh, in this book. So, I like this push. A I'm lot. trying to do a lot of reading right now on yeah. natural law, and I underlined that same sense because, like, oh, that's interesting. He's saying the task of the state is to discover natural law yes. and uphold it. And yes. it's a, I mean, it's, it almost sounds very Catholic in this moment yeah. because we live in a moment where only the Catholics have done a good job in the last 50 years making arguments from natural law. Protestants have kind of, until very recently, abandoned that and tried to make arguments just from the Bible. And Bavink is very much an older school Protestant in the sense that he has a high view of natural law, and he says the state exists to to enforce and to protect and to promote what we can see from nature. Yeah, it also challenges this idea that the state can somehow maintain this objective distance and neutrality when he's saying, no, there's actually a moral objective standard that the state needs to discover, discern, and then actually enforce in society. Let me read the next sentence after the one you read, because I think it gets even more, for people who are like, well, I don't know, Chris, maybe you're being a little bit you know, excited about what the government should do. Here's the next sentence Bavink writes. By means of its legislation regarding marriage and divorce, property and inheritance, working hours and Sunday rest, the labor of women and children, public decency, and many other things, the state would be working in a powerful way for the well-being and flourishing of the family. So I want you to notice he just said it's okay for you to have policy opinions on the state's laws about public decency or about yeah. working hours or about Sunday rest. Like it's actually okay for you to say, you know what, there should be laws about what hours businesses can be open and there should be laws about public decency and th- restricting things like pornography, which in our day and age is like, well, if you try to restrict anything, you're like a, you know, you're, you're against free speech. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's not been the case historically. There's always been a concern for what is, how do we preserve public decency, um, property and inheritance. You know, so th- it's interesting that there's specific policy concerns he has in mind here and says the state has a 
moral obligation to, and Christians have an obligation to advance the interests of the family in those areas. Yeah. So when we talk about as Christians, as pastors, uh, those who do theology, public theology, social ethics, when we talk about the family, what Bavink is emphasizing here, we can't just be talking about, like you said earlier, the relationships, you know, husbands and wives and how they navigate, how you parent your kids, kind of the internal work into the family. We also have to be talking about the world at large, the culture, government, economics. Mm. How are those things reinforcing the stability of the family and cultivating uh, a sense in which he says at the end of that chapter uh, or the end of that paragraph, the state's ideal is not to do everything itself, but to provide every citizen and all the spheres of life and society with the opportunity for each in their own domain to fulfill their own calling. So the idea is the state should be working to whatever degree, you know, how, you know, how you pull those specific levers, you know, up for discuss, uh, debate and discussion, but it should not be doing anything to undermine and making it harder for a man to be a father and a husband or a, a wife, a woman to be a wife or a mother, you know, so, so that all of those things within society are actually supporting the, the thriving and flourishing of the family. And I don't, again, I don't know if that gets enough airtime. I know well, I think for myself, I don't know if I give that enough airtime. And I wonder if, I mean, I'm intrigued by, you know, Bovink's working in the Dutch Reformed tradition, which has a high emphasis on sphere sovereignty. Mm -hmm. That's what Kuiper called it, which is that the family has a sphere that is appropriate for it. Government has a sphere that's appropriate for it. And society as a whole has a sphere. And, and you know, he uses the language of sphere in that quote that you just read. Yeah, All spheres yeah. of life with the opportunity for each to fulfill their own calling. And foundational to sort of how the, the Dutch reformers saw this is to say, yeah, the family is its own sphere. Government may not intrude into that sphere in the sense that God has given the family its own domain. And so when, as you read this chapter and this whole book, Bavink is very critical of socialism. And one of the reasons is because socialism is government overreach into the sphere of the family. Yeah. And, you know, you see with, with totalitarian regimes that tend to sort of, you know, look at what's happened in, in communist China, for instance, where the government's mandating, here's how many kids you get to have, and here's what your life can look like. And so when, when governments intrude into the sphere that God has given to the family, the, the, the reformers, especially in the Dutch tradition, are very particular about maintaining the separation between those things. And they say, state, church, family, and society all have an interdependent kind of relationship, but each has their own sphere and God has intended it to be that way. And to the extent that they begin to sort of cross spheres or try to interfere in with, within each of those spheres, uh, that's where we get into trouble. And, and remember they're making a theological argument there. So that's not just a pragmatic, the state does better when it stays out of the family's way. It's a theological argument mm -hmm. to say God has given each of these their own domain. And it, you know, the Catholics have a similar doctrine that they call, subsidiarity, which is just a way of saying, you know, the state's job is to do what the church can't do and what the family can't do. You know, it's like, almost think of it as building blocks, you know, like there's the state, the state's job is to sort of do the, the big picture stuff and leave the sort of local problems to be solved by local governments and local churches and families. And so that the, the state sort of exists in a different category than those other spheres. One of the things that I found fascinating is how he talks about the shifting dynamics of servant life within their society and how uh, housekeeping was moving from this 
this role within the family to now becoming more of a profession. And what what's fascinating is how Boving both sees the ways in which that is changing the family, but he's also able to see ways that it could potentially benefit the family. So he, he's talking about how if if the housekeeper becomes a little bit more professional in some ways, there's ways in that could actually benefit the wife and, and her role as a mother and and actually cause her to to care for uh, the household management in some better ways. And so I, I liked how Bavink is not just, he's not saying, hey, we just have to go back to this former structure if we're gonna, um, the family's gonna be benefited by economics and different structures outside the home. But he he's actually saying, there's ways in which progress can actually be a benefit to the family, even as it it threatens and challenges. And this, to me, this is Bavink at his best, where he's able to both be orthodox and modern, like like um, some have said about him. So I and so when I was reading that, the thing that I think kind of captured my my mind was where are those places in our society where you see some shifting cultural things happening in economic dynamics, but there's actually opportunities for families to be strengthened through that. I don't necessarily have any answers, but it just kind of got me thinking along those lines of like not all change is bad, not all change is a threat, and as Christians we need to be thoughtful careful, uh, do, do good work. Um, as we think about kind of the, what, what's in front of us also be realistic about what's in front of us. That's, I think that's the other thing Bob Inc is saying is some things the cat gets let out of the bag. We're not going back. And so we, yes, we want to look to places to reform society, but also consider, Hey, where, where are some areas of change that we can actually embrace? Let me make a couple editorial comments there. One is the biggest danger for faithful Christian cultural engagement is the danger of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. The danger of if we just dial the Mm -hmm. clock back to 1950 or 1900 or, you know, 2006 or whatever, that, that, you know, things were better then and we need to sort of go back to that. So sometimes when you hear people talk about how to renew society, it's essentially calling us back to some golden age and that's never workable. And Bavink, you're right, you're exactly right, that Bavink never makes that mistake because he understands history is progressive. Like the sovereignty mm-hmm. of God is moving us somewhere. And so we might wish we could go back to a day when, you know, household servants functioned in this way instead of that way. But he knows, like, we're not going back there. So he's always good at reading the current moment and trying to ask what opportunities are there for faithful Christian presence in the now. And I think that's instructive for us because a lot of people— if you think about America being a highly polarized culture or, you know, a, an increasingly secular culture, a lot of people's solution is let's go back to <laughs> back to how things used to be. Bavink uh, and I would say the Bible don't let us make that uh, mistake. Second, I think chapters like this and books like this teach us how to read. Here's what I mean. It's possible to read sections like you just talked about, Chris, where he's talking about household servants. And number one, He's talking about something particular in the Netherlands in the early 20th century where it's like everybody had a housekeeper. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like that was how society worked back then. But also, it's possible to read that and go like, well, gosh, he's kind of like old school. Like he's he's talking about a system that's like, you know, old school. Obsolete. um, Obsolete. You know, and, and to knock on, because a book like this is a product of its own time. And so sometimes when people who aren't appropriately thoughtful read books like this. They just sort of pick away at the sort of things that aren't like how we look at things today. The correct way to read, as you're pointing out, Chris, is to ask, what is this author doing to engage their own moment? 
if all we do is say, well, our moment isn't like that moment and that moment looks dumb or looks backwards or looks, you know, obsolete, we're missing the point. The point is, how does this writer or author engage the questions of their own day? And then how does that help us understand how we ought to engage the questions of our own day? So one thing that's fascinating as you read this particular book is Bavink is clearly engaging these social changes that are happening in his own world where the the country is becoming increasingly urban. More and more people are moving to the city. The household is increasingly becoming outward facing where it's um, people are working in the industrial marketplace rather than within the home. He's engaging all of those changes and talking about them all and essentially trying to apply what does scripture say about how we should be responding to these things. You can read them and say like, well, it sounds like a hundred years old because it is a hundred years old. But the point is that he gives us a great model for our own day of asking, okay, how should we as faithful Christians living when we do be engaging and applying the scriptures to the context that we're living in and to the social changes going on around us? And sometimes that's resist and rebel. Sometimes that's work for renewal and reform. Sometimes that's receive the good graces that God is giving us in the, in the world around us. Uh, it can have all of those postures, but I, I think reading a book like this, I've talked to some people who just don't like this book because it's just like, well, I mean, it's just talking about a world that we don't live in anymore. You know, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't apply yeah. to how my family looks, Yeah, but I just think that's not the correct, not the right way to read a book like this. Yeah. One example that came to mind is social mobility. And, and what I mean by that is your ability to move, like literally pack up and move from one state to the next. Like there, there's a transience to our society and, and there's some ways in which that has been harmful. But I do wonder as we think about just that mobility that we have, in what ways has that shifted the family that have been detrimental, but what are, are ways that that provides opportunity? Again, I'm, I'm thinking out loud just more so yeah. like a, a, a reality of our, our current day um, so if, uh, smarter people, more thoughtful people can, can give answers to that. But that's, that was something that came to mind. I'm like, I wonder, I wonder how we, Bob Inc would answer that question if he were wrestling through, you know, our current situation. Well, it's interesting your example there, because we've had families, uh, a few families move to Omaha to be a part of Cormdale church because their employer, it doesn't matter where they live. Mm -hmm. So in light of the transient availability that we do have, those families have answered the question of well, who, who do we want to raise our kids with and around and the culture and the church yeah. is important in that decision for them. So I do think that's a positive answer towards that um, in light of what Bovink is saying and preserving the family, remaining Christian, remaining Orthodox, yeah. and then being shaped by a community and, and et cetera, yeah. as, the, as the transient society is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Let me read a section where he's kind of doing what you're talking about, Chris. He's, he's narrating one of the shifts, and then trying to sort of apply biblical categories to it. So I'm going to read from page 156. The patriarchal family possessed a communal house and land. Its property consisted chiefly in natural goods, slaves, land, livestock, means of subsistence, etc. And in later times as well, slaves belonged to the estate on which they lived, and with a change in ownership were transferred along with it. Today, however, money, which previously was only a medium of exchange and available in very limited quantity, has come to overshadow all other possessions. From being a medium of exchange, money has become the fruit and purpose of work. Today, people think of money when they think of capital. 
which is interesting because I don't even think of money and capital as two different things. Like I'm, I'm like further down. I'm like, those are just the same word yeah, to me. Yeah. But he's pointing out that we, in a previous society or social arrangement, you would have thought of your assets more as your land, your livestock, your, you know, whatever property your family owned and the household include, now think of, he used the language of slavery, which I think is tense for us because we live in America, but think about like Downton Abbey, you know, it's just like you own the state and you own the little towns and you own yeah. the fields that people are working. It's just, you know, that's how you would have thought about wealth at some point in history. Now you think about wealth in terms of your net worth, your 401k, your, you know, what money you have in a bank somewhere. And so he goes on in this section and basically says, okay, what does this change create? And he says, basically what he gives us here is like a theology of money, a theology of dollars, because he says, when you, when you have a shift in capital from physical assets to money, a medium of exchange really is what money is. Money, money is just something that can get you, can buy you something, you know, it's a way to exchange goods. And so he spends a couple pages here just working out how, what does money make possible? What does it, what does it deform? But then what new forms does it make possible? And what he, he, he mentions almost exactly, he doesn't use the language you just did, Dusty, but on page 157, he says, by means of money, the possibilities and opportunities are multiplied for all people to be active for the benefit of society. Surely the chance is increased also to abuse money. One can make money his God and through money make his stomach his God. But that same money also puts one in a position to support important undertakings through donations of a smaller or larger amount and to further the work of culture by means of small or large contributions to work together for the moral elevation of society, for the flourishing of churches and schools, for rendering various acts of mercy, for advancing the kingdom of God. Nowadays, that is not a privilege reserved only for a few who are rich, but almost everyone can participate at present, each in his own way and according to the capacity granted to him. So he's sort of like tracing, hey, money makes certain things possible. Let's everybody participate in generosity and in furthering the kingdom of God. Whereas in the past, it would have been the rich. It would have been the people who had resources who were sort of primarily responsible for doing good in the city and furthering culture. And so he's he's narrating there a shift that has happened in society and then trying to work out how does the Bible help us think about that? Mm -hmm. So as we've said about Bavink, even when we were talking about the wonderful works of God, so much of learning from him is learning how to theologize. Mm. I mean, his, his conclusions are, you know, usually right and sharp and biblical and, and thoughtful and we can affirm, but it's, it's also how he is engaging particular issues of his day that I think is particularly instructive. Like when I think about teaching guys how to theologize about something, I'm like, Hey, this is the kind of theologizing I want us to do. Mm. I want to be, I want to grow into Continuing with the idea of money, I also like when he talks about, he has this line where he says, sin resides in the person, not in money. Money is a good gift of God and affords opportunity for beneficial work. And prior to that, he talks about how everybody is a steward. I love the idea that sin resides in the person, not in money. Yeah. Um, because I think to some who have been given a lot, you know, they don't want to be sinful with it. And <laughs> I think Bobbing's category or line there helps us go, well, you're a person and you're going to be sinful. So it's not the money's issue. You, know, you, have, more, you have more to steward. Yeah. You might have more to steward, but the, and so don't let your sin get in the way of that. All right, let me read the concluding couple paragraphs of this chapter and of this book because they're very doxological. He, he gets us to sort of, 
he lands the plane in a way that sort of made me close the book and go, man, kingdom come, you know, come Lord Jesus to use the, the language of Advent. So I'm going to read from the last few paragraphs of the Christian family. Bavink writes, apart from revelation, the origin, essence, purpose, and destiny of the human race are entirely unknown to us. Because without this knowledge, we cannot live and cannot die, cannot think and cannot labor. The Christian faith is replaced by arbitrary guesses and the Christian hope by vain expectations. People then dream of a future state that will arise automatically through evolution in which everyone will live happily and contentedly. But in this case, it's like a hungry man dreaming that he is eating, but when he awakens, his soul is empty. Or like a thirsty man dreaming that he is drinking, but when he awakens, he is still parched and his soul is thirsty. Christians know about other and better things. They do not look back to the past with homesickness, for even then not everything that glittered was golden. They do not surrender their hearts to the present, for their eyes see the suffering that belongs inseparably to the present time. And they do not fantasize about a perfect society, because in this dispensation, sin will continue to hold sway and will constantly corrupt all that is good. But they are assured that God's purpose within the human race will nevertheless be attained, despite all the conflict involved. Humanity and the world exist, after all, for the sake of the church. And the church exists for the sake of Christ's will. And Christ belongs to God. In the city of God, the creation reaches its final goal. Into that city, all the treasures will be brought together that have been acquired by humanity in the course of time through fearsome conflict. All the glory of the nations is gathered there. And in the spiritual association of Christ with his church, marriage will also reach its end. Marriage was instituted so that the glory of the king would come to light in the multitude of his subjects. Once it has attained this goal, marriage itself will pass away. The shadow will make way for the substance, the symbol for the reality. The history of the human race began with a wedding. It also ends with a wedding. The wedding of Christ and his church, of the heavenly Lord with his earthly bride. End quote. Drop mic, mm. close book. He's pointing us to the new heavens and new earth, and he's reminding us we don't look back at the past in nostalgia. We don't look to the present because we see the suffering and inseparability of fallenness in the world, and we don't look to some ideal future when everything is going to be perfect, but rather we, we maintain our hope in the story that God is writing, in the fact that God has purposes for humanity, and though we will continue to dwell in a world that's fallen, there is a, a city of God coming. Um, and that's what Revelation concludes with. Yeah, and what I love about how Bob Inc. applies that in this last chapter is he says, for Christians who are seeking to build godly families and then actually working for reformation in this in the culture and in society, we can do that with hope. We don't need to retreat. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be uh, you know, the, the angry ranters, but we can actually work for gospel renewal because of that hope that, that you pointed out, Bob, that, that he highlights. So I, I love how Bob Inc., in this last chapter, even as he highlights some challenges, it's incredibly hopeful. And he calls us to be hopeful and to do this good work. And I am hopeful for the household of Matt and Kelsey Bear making cinnamon rolls for our podcast. It's just, an, it's just a great example of the way the family can anticipate the new <laughs> heavens and the new earth in what the household can create out of love. 
The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.